welcome to a special Bees Pod tonight. We have, I think, a bona fide Barnet legend in the house. A Barnet player that had a hugely successful period at the club, uh, joining the club in 1990. In his first season, won the, we won the league. In his second season, he won the Barnet Football Club Supporters Association Player of the Year. And we got to the playoffs. And his third season, uh, we got promotion again. So I am so pleased to welcome Dave Howe, or Alzi, to Bees Pod. Welcome, Alzi. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. I'm good. Um, it's just really strange, you know, looking back on all those times at Barnet, you know, I look back with some fond memories. There were some obviously great highs, and unfortunately it all went a little bit, I'd say, pear-shaped towards the end. But that was nothing to do with the players or the management. You know, that was to do with a person, a particular person, chairman of Barnet Football Club at the time. But I, I, I look back on those memories as some of the best times I had in football. And especially, um, you know, I've never played under a manager like Barry Fry. <laughs> so... I know, we've got, we can cover that over the next, you know, however long... We get, we sit here and, uh, okay. and chat, but yeah. I'm um you know there are that was the period that I f- became a fan of Barnet, and I know there's many listeners to this show uh, will have fell in love with that Barnet team uh, mm. of just before your period when when the Barry Fry had us playing some of the best football in the country, banging in goals for fun. We were the we were the entertainers at the time. That's and right. And you came in around the time you came in, it all started to just make sense, and it suddenly. It kicked on, and then it, it could quite possibly be in a Netflix series, couldn't it? That that period of Barnet. Well, I think we were sort of missed our opportunity because at times, if that was a Netflix player, that would have been a, a, it would have been gold dust, you know, it'd have been brilliant. But you know, for me personally, when I joined Barnet, I remember I used to meet up with some of the Barnet players, and um, before I joined, uh, and being in the England squad, you come across all the different players, and they were saying, oh. Don't go to Barnet, you know, because Barry Fry always signs loads of players, and you know, you, you that will be the end for you. I remember um, Tony Jennings, may he rest in peace. He sat me on the coach. I think it was my last game for England, and I said that you know I was gonna just concentrate on the rest of the non-league football and whatever. I was getting to the twilight of my England career, and he said, "But why are you going to Barnet?" Look at Gary Abbott. He went to Barnet and he's not playing and he's lost and blah, 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 blah. And I said, well, I'm not Gary Abbott. So anyway, I joined Barnet and it was the best decision I made. Made some great great friends, great players. Uh, socially brilliant. Professionally, they were brilliant. And people don't seem to realise that. They all think it was just, oh, just all a laugh and a bit of a, a bit of a fun side and we scored goals and you know we were cavalierish type team but we were also you know all the players were professional and although Barry gave us this leeway no one really took advantage of it you know we if we went out on a Friday night like as reported we had maybe two or three groups one group would stay in the hotel on a Friday night and just you know your Gary Phillips your Wayne Turners people like that then you get another group of which um I'd say they liked to go out and have fun and didn't care what time it was they came in. And then you had the others that would just go out, not drink, 
and come back in at a reasonable time. But either way, all three of us came together at three o'clock on that Saturday afternoon and were focused on one thing, and that was winning the game of football. And, you know, we knew we had the players that could match and play against any side at that level. And when you think about some of the players that were playing, and if you could look back at some of the um, the videos of the football that was played at the time, you know, it was truly a brilliant squad that Barry had put together. And I was just kind of, I guess, lucky, fortunate and appreciative to be a part of that. What was interesting, actually, is you've got a very similar sort of back, not backstory, but you've got a very similar sort of situation to Kenny Lowe, who we interviewed a few years ago. Right. And in that you arrived at Barnet quite late in your career and probably, I mean, did you think that your chance of playing in the league was pretty much you'd missed the boat around playing in the league? when you first arrived at Barnet? When I first arrived at Barnet, I thought, you know, that was one thing that Barry made clear that he wanted. You know, they were trying to get into the league. And for me, I mean, I come from Enfield. It's not as bad as going from Tottenham to Arsenal or Arsenal to Tottenham, but Enfield to Barnet, Barnet to Enfield that time was pretty, you know, you're crossing North London. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, I thought that Barnet, Barry sold it to me and... Um, I think at the time, as well, as well as Barnet being a, a successful and a strong side, they were also pushing, pushing to get into the league, and that was something obviously that I thought, like you said, that I might have missed. Really, I had, I had a spell where I felt I was playing well and for England and for Enfield, but I think I was getting on in years. I must have been getting in my late twenties or whatever, or you know, I can't remember exactly, but this was an opportunity and I just seized it with both hands. And, you know, you talked about the games where we got the promotion and that was something that sticks out in my memory and will stay with me, you know, the match against Fisher, which was just a great day for the football club in general. Definitely. I think you arrived when you were 31. So yeah. you'd pl- you'd played a lot of games for Enfield yeah. um, in that period. And... Um, did you did you join at the same time as Andy Pape? I think I think uh, yeah I think we I think I was playing for Enfield and we had just played not long played Barnet and I think we'd beaten Barnet three or something like that and then I played for Barnet against Enfield and I think we beat Enfield by about six or seven or something ridiculous you know but I remember playing against Barnet with Enfield shortly not long before I joined them so you know I think Barry must have thought. We're good going forward. We love attacking. We score goals. I just need a centre half. <laughs> you know, I need to stop it. <laughs> so most of it. So, so you arrived in. Um, I think it was nineteen ninety. Um, did you did you arrive in the summer or did you arrive sort of midway? Because Barry used to love a signing where you'd suddenly look at the team sheet and go, right, none of these players. There's about three of these players that are not even not on the back of the program. Um, were you? Were... I remember. I, I remember. Yeah. No, I remember. I started begin the season and I remember um, thinking at the time because I've spoken to the England non-league manager Tony Jennings and I'd more or less said well he 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 felt that I wouldn't get back in the England side if I went to Barnet so I don't know why he was trying to stop me from going to Barnet but um, he said it wouldn't be good for my football and they're not professional, and but anyway, I, I decided to made I made up my own mind, and it was the best thing I did, and 
and we went from strength to strength and we had players in the side that like you say if we did Netflix program I, I, I played with Kenny Lowe for England and Kenny Lowe Paul Schowler um, Barry's not silly Barry's cute and he put together Mark Carter you know he brought in these players and he allowed them to settle and to blend in they didn't drag them down that they never had to train they had to report for matches um, I was still working at the BBC at the time and so when you know Barnett were like semi-pro and before they got the promotion and then started to go a bit more full-time with players and stuff Barry was always a, a Barry was always adjusting and making um, allowances for for players but the nucleus of the squad was always together and he you know he knew what he was doing and he still liked to do a bit of shopping, Barry. You know, you still would find a player would turn up here out of the blue or whatever, you know. So that, but it always kept you on your toes because if, if you felt comfortable or relaxed, that wasn't to be it, Barney. I mean, I think for scoring goals, we had people like with Mark Carter and Gary Ball. I, I've looked back online and YouTube and seen some of the goals we scored. They were just unbelievable goals when you look back on them. You know, some of them are just truly magnificent goals and, I look at the Fisher game, which no one knows. That Fisher game, I had an injury. I played that game and I couldn't strike the ball properly with my right foot. I had a padding over my instep, but I was not going to miss that match. You know, I was going to sit from the side and not be able to feel I could contribute. You know, we worked so hard. Um, and I a bit disappointed with the first goal, uh, the, the young lad they had up front. And I was determined, you know, I felt a little bit responsible. I played with Nuge and... We didn't strike up the right partnership early on when it mattered in that match. So as as the game went on, we took control and, you know, Bully scored his goal. I scored my goal from Kenny Lowe's corner. And I don't know if you see from my reaction, when I scored that goal, it wasn't a case of I was happy and, you know, we were going to get promoted and we won. It was a case of let's focus and let's keep doing this thing. Uh, we can't let this slip, you know. I, that was my actually at the time and I had to get myself mentally prepared as well because every time I was striking the ball I was getting a, like a little searing pain through my foot but I thought just keep going come on and I was you know I was in that zone for that period of time um, and at the end of the game it was just sheer relief and joy you know so we, we needed a character that, that day because I mean, the two, I think the two or three seasons before that, we'd finished second. So we'd, and in those yeah. days, it was only one team went up. Uh, so yeah. it was very much winner takes all in, in the conference back in those days. So it could have been, who knows what could have happened if we didn't go up that season. Yeah, I think that's one of the reasons that Barry brought me because I think he, they had all the flair, they had all the attacking prowess, and, you know, and I think he just wanted something to keep them anchored to keep the boys focused at the back and whatever and and and, and in, in chatting with Barry I felt that and I felt that I could deliver that mm. so you know that's really my contribution to all the players who were playing like you know mentioned a few um the player that joined and I struck up a good relationship with for a while um we actually lived together which Gary Ball uh, Roger Willis and myself, we shared a house together during that period, you know, so we were like the three musketeers. <laughs> uh, so it was it was great times on and off the park. 
That's amazing. So when you first joined and you walked into the, the group, obviously you might have known a lot of these players before, but which were the yeah. ones where you, where you having looked up close to them and went, yeah, I think these guys are the business. I think these are guys are the real deal. Who are the ones that you looked at in the change room and thought, yeah, I think we could we could go somewhere with these lot? No, well, I just felt that Gary Borg could score goals. You know, Gary Borg was just unbelievable. Didn't have a great deal of pace or anything like that, but his speed of thought in his head, he was always a step ahead of any defender. Um, and when we brought in Mark Carter... Knowing that you've got them two, you knew you had goals in you. Um, but really, the whole side, I mean, I remember Mick Bodley playing alongside, I struck a partnership with Mick Bodley straight away. Uh, Paul Wilson, uh, Gary Paul, you know, all these players that I settled in with on the park and off the park. Um, if, 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 if you look at it, even Edwin Steen, you know, Edwin, the thing about Edwin is, He's got all the gift of the gab, but he backs it up. So even when he'd go, look, I want you to do this. I want you to do that. You're not doing this right. This is how I want you to do it. Look, and they're going to do it. And you go, oh, you wish you'd get it wrong. But he always got it right. And Edwin, I think he personified the confidence that was reflected in the squad of the players. And he epitomized, he led that. He led that kind of feeling. And so those were the kind of leaders who were steering the ship, you know. But Edwin definitely, and, and Gary Ball, his confidence. Uh, Gary Phillips in goal, his experience, but he was also a character and a personality. And these were people that, if you struggled in a game for whatever reason and the result didn't go your way, you had to be able to pick yourself up and go again the next week. And these players could do that quite easily. And I think that was a secret, not just all the exciting attacking football when it didn't work out we'd come again you know we didn't ever have long spells of too many indifferent results and we probably if we lost a game I think one of our first games I remember uh, in the league was Brentford and it, it might have been 5-3 or something like that we would we would do that but you wouldn't get that every week we'd come back and we'd put in a good performance and win 2-0 or something or you know so we weren't just a side that was scored loads of goals and suddenly we were poor at the back and start conceding, we were finally balanced. And I don't think that was kind of appreciated or really documented. It was always 101 goals. How many more goals can we get? 105 goals this season or stuff like that, you know? Well, I think it didn't help that in our first game in the league, we lost 7-4. And then that Brentford game you're talking about ended up 5-5. So, <laughs> so, so I think that kind of that stuck with a lot of people. Those just those two games. It did indeed. It did indeed. It did indeed. It I think indeed. if I'm not wrong, I think the next game we won three 0 or something, and we got a clean sheet. Yeah. So, yeah. But people still remember the first two. But you still remember the first two, <laughs> you know. But that because I think if you look at the first two, we were also you got to remember we were kind of. Children of Fry, you know, Barry Fry would win a match 17-16 and be happy. Whereas another manager would say, look, 2-0 will be enough or 2-1. But back 2-1, let's get, get, get a third goal. Let's get a fourth goal. Let's get a fifth goal. You know, and that was Barry and that's how he played football. And that's, you know, it reflected somewhat in the team. 
and reflected in the in the attendances because in those days, I mean those those gate those um, gates that we were getting at Underhill never been replicated again. I mean there was yeah. uh, they were yeah. cramming. I mean it's a long running joke that um, that every every week it would be absolutely heaving in Underhill, and then the attendance would be read out and it'd be four thousand one hundred. Next week, 4,200, 4,100. And you'd be like, there's at least 7,000 in here. This place <laughs> is rammed. I know. I think, I think, I think um, Stan or, the, or Barnett must have been the only club that, you know, you, you, you'd think there was X number of people in there, but it was given as Y. You'd be thinking, oh, hmm, are you sure? But the thing was, whoever went, they'd come back. Because you'd be you'd be entertained. <laughs> Whatever happened, you'd be entertained, and you'd one thing you'd be guaranteed: you wouldn't be bored inside that ground at Underhill. You know, there's no way of watching a game of football there for ninety minutes and being bored. No, definitely. I think we became everybody's second team around that time because people yeah. just wanted to be entertained, um, and it was really noticeable um, that you know that. You'd, you'd notice different people, people wearing different shirts and stuff like that, but they just come because they want to watch Barnet play because they knew they were going to get entertained. Um, so that, I mean, that, that, so that first season you came. Now, interesting enough, actually, I, I dug out, I just looked on your Wikipedia page and I noted that your first lineup had Andy Clark and Paul, uh, Paul Harding in it. And both of those yeah, were sold yeah. before that. And it makes me yeah. feel like th- those two are very good players and the wheels didn't come off after, you know, yeah. we just, kept going and we replaced just it. kept going just kept going and you could go on and you'd find other players and you think oh yeah I forgot about him I mean with Paul Harding I was with him at Enfield Paul Harding and Andy Clark wasn't there for too long while I was there but even then Andy you know he, he's a player that got you out your seat you know when you see him play people you'd be like whoa you'd be out your seat straight away as he goes marauding down that left wing or whatever um, but so many players graced that squad of players in and around the time that I was there, and they were just nearly all of them were brilliant. So, any any favourite memories? For, so that season that we went up, obviously the Fisher game was the big highlight. And um, but uh, is there any other games that you think leading up to that? Because I remember we went for a bit of a sticky pace. Um, my memories, you know, is not the greatest because I was think I was about twelve or thirteen when that when that season, and I remember we went for a bit of a sticky phase, and you know. If you can, can you remember, you know, how you managed to sort of how the team managed to get themselves out of that little sticky phase and push on, you know, for the league? Uh, it's it's really it was nothing complicated. It was just really simple. The lads were really confident players. Um, they partied hard and played hard, and for us, it was just a great moment in time. I've never been in a atmosphere or a team like that you would think if the pressure's on you're not doing well and you know it it might not be a good place to be but the lads were just brilliant absolutely brilliant and I mean you're going to probably go on and touch to the problems that we had with wages and all that kind of stuff but even through that and even to the point that when people were leaving you know there was still togetherness and a bond and you know, I just can't put my finger on it. You know, it was just truly a unique squad in a, a unique time going through some 
real difficult stuff on the pitch in games and matches, but still having that. It's a broad, it's broader between arrogance and confidence of feeling that, you know, yeah, that we're too good to lose this match or we're too good to go on another run, bad run or whatever. We've got this person this time. We've got this person. You know, Kenny Lowe. Kenny Lowe probably epitomised the team when he joined and started playing. He was a showman. He had so much ability. You know, he could pick passes out from anywhere. He'd put the ball through someone's legs in his own six-yard box and stuff like that. You know, he... But he had that confidence and that arrogance. And I think that the team had that in abundance throughout the squad. So, you know... There, there were there were things that used to be said like, um, oh, I don't know, Barry, Barry won't put pressure on you. So, like I said, we go in a away match. We go by coach on a Friday. Barry's just signed a player, and he would tell that player, "We got a big game tomorrow. It's an important game. We're at Macclesfield or whoever or whatever. I want you in before six o'clock Saturday morning." And bloke would be thinking, what's he talking about six o'clock Saturday morning? Six o'clock? He said, yeah, if you get in, no, he said, if you get in before six o'clock on a Saturday morning, you're fine. And the lad would be thinking, what's he talking about? We're sitting beside him and say, yeah, we used to arrive at a hotel and speak to the reception and say, where can we go? That's not too far or where are the nice bars around there? For that group, where the nice clubs around there for that group, you know, for different groups, and it didn't matter if we were on a strong winning run or a poor losing run. That's what we did, and it worked. I've never seen it. I mean, if I was in charge of the team, you know, they'd, or if anybody else or been involved in teams, you you'd be away and you'd be in your rooms by a certain time. And I'm not saying it's lights out, but as long as you're in your room in a hotel, then it's fine. But you wouldn't find anybody in their rooms. Nobody. I don't even, I can't recall any player having dinner, having a chat, eight, nine o'clock, chilling out and going to their rooms to get ready for the match tomorrow. You'd bring a change of clothing for going out. Everybody. You've got your, sat, you've got your Saturday night clothes in your suit thing. And you're travelling your tracksuit and you've got your clothes for going out when you get there. I think the only the only problem it might have been with some of the married players when they'd say, you know, oh, we're going away, we're going away. And, oh, uh, yeah, and they, why are you taking these clothes? Why are you taking these clothes? And, oh, no, oh, oh. And they had to try and lie their way through it. But that's what would happen. You know, we're travelling our tracksuits. We'll have a suit carrier with clothes for the... Friday Friday night out and that was just part of our way and our away form was as probably as decent as our home form you know it wasn't reflective in the fact that everybody had about three or four hours sleep top whack or everybody got in at five or six in the morning you know it was oh incredible time incredible and the t- the, t- the togetherness the bond was the biggest thing, the biggest thing ever. And I think lots of clubs now in the premiership and whatever, they, you know, you look at football clubs and they talk about the team spirit and, you know, doing, playing together, knowing each other inside out. Well, we knew each other inside out because we spent hours with each other. 
We spend hours playing cards. We spend hours going out, sitting in the bar, drinking. We spend hours on the dance floor. We like we we were always together. Um, so, no, it was just talking about it now is kind of jogging things in my memory. You know, you say you were twelve at the time. I'm now I'm sixty four next month. So I've got to go back to thirty years to try and <laughs> retrieve those memories. You know, so <laughs> it was it was good. I mean, Kenny told me some funny funny stories. Um, about I mean playing under Barry Fry, um, and I'd like to get, take a just a quick break at this point. And what we'll do is when we come back, we'll um, we'll focus a little bit on uh, uh, on sort of Barry Fry as a manager because I think that, that's quite an interesting case study in its own right. So yeah, so that is indeed yeah. So we're back in a second. So welcome back to the second part of this Beast Pod interview with Dave Howe. And uh, and I wanted to focus a little bit on the uh the legend and the myth that is that is Barry Fry and and obviously so Dave you obviously you had a a long spell as a as a manager so obviously you had a chance to see it as a player and sort of be able to sort of put it into focus with your management experience as well too. So tell us a bit about Barry Fry's methods and how you know, and how he sort of worked that team and how he sort of, his methods. Yeah, I mean, Barry was very cute. He wasn't silly. He came across as this carefree, uh, lovable rogue. I don't know, your Arthur Daly type, you know, um, manager. But he could spot a player and he could put a team together. And he could fit that jigsaw puzzle together. And he knew what he was looking for. And he knew somebody, what they were worth. And he also had the ability to know if he could move them on. And if he could move them on, he was already looking for someone to bring in. And that's how he operated. Um, you know, no player was too big or too great that can't be replaced. And he done a lot of things as well, Barry, in his time for reaction. Because sometimes... When you're dealing with a bunch of players that thinks, you know, we're the best and we're great and whatever, he he can't allow complacency to creep in. And he would do stuff that would be out the ballpark to get people back on track. Um, and he was very, very smart of it. I say cute, but he was very smart. He he would blow up one minute, but it'd be a show. It was his way of getting to players or getting into players' heads. Um, I think I never really ever got um, the, the hairdryer, so to speak, the Alex Ferguson hairdryer from Barry. You know, I was because the way I play, I was kind of I was always at least a six, seven out of ten every week, regardless. If I had a bad game, it's probably a six. If I had a good game, it's probably an eight. And I was always in that region. So I was never, you know, running down the ring, beating two, three players or anything like that. I was a steady player. And I think that's what he brought me for to bring into the squad, into the team. But some of the players that he'd expect to do certain things, if they didn't do that, they're not really contributing. So those are players that are a bit more indispensable. He will swap about or bring somebody in or he'll look for another midfield player or look for another wide right or whatever it is. Um, so you, you could never sit comfortably knowing 
That's how Barry operates. Yeah. So that was a kind of art that he had. And the fact that, you know, I just likened him to Arthur, uh, Arthur Daly or um, used car salesman or whatever. It was that sheer fact knowing that you turn up for training and there might be two or three new players here. But he would always have you on your toes. No yeah. matter how confident you were, you would still have to be on your toes because, I mean, I was sitting at half and that he had um, Mick Bodley, Gary Paul, play centre-half, Richard Nugent, you know, he got Duncan Horton in. So you were always having to keep, you know, playing and doing well. And and, and, and that, 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 that's where he was good. And that's where he was very, very clever. And the players responded to that because... You can give somebody a roasting, but if you see someone turns up and sitting where you normally sit, or somebody's coming training that you don't know too much about, you know, I, I see the players are talking. They're like, "Oh, he's got another player, and who's that?" And that kept the players in check. Uh, so he he was clever with that, but he also loved all his players, and you know, he was a very open, honest, and well, when I say honest, you wouldn't think he was honest because of the he will tell you one thing and then suddenly you know, oh, you're not in the squad, somebody else is. So then he'll say, Well, you're not doing it or whatever or I I I, I, I need this or I need that. So <laughs> you you had to be on your toes and you know I think he got the balance right. He was kind of carefree one minute and looked like he didn't care. He'll be training, having a cup of tea, watching the players. Edwin did a lot of the, you know, heavy lifting. Um, and Barry were just, you know, they had the, as I got in the management team with them, you know, they we did this good cop, bad cop kind of thing. And, you know, I was the peacemaker. I was the mediator between the two. And, um, and that panned out when we had the problems with, um, the chairman and the wages. I end up being the representative from the player, players having to speak to the PFA, having to speak to Stan. You know, I think he sacked Barry about three or four times during that period. Um, it was just, I've never experienced anything like that. You know, I even went round to the chairman's house. I had to sit down. And when I went round there, there was press all outside and he wanted to talk to, about the players and the manager and he didn't have a good word to say about Barry. He didn't have a good word to say about um, Edwin. Um, and I remember a story that Barry told us once. Um, he signed Roger Willis and Stan didn't rate him. Stan just thought, no, nah, I don't like him for whatever reason. Um, didn't think he was good enough for Barnett. And but Barry just thought, yeah, yeah. And kept playing him. And Stan told Barry to tell Harry, Roger Willis, we called him Harry, that he's going to send an assassin, a sniper, to the training ground. He'll be in the trees or up in the trees looking to take out Harry if he ever comes back to Underhill or Barnet to train. And Harry was beside himself. He's like, well, that's a chairman talking about me like that. What do I do? And Barry said, ah, don't worry about it. 
And everyone say, "Yeah, it's all right for you to say, don't worry about it, Barry." Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> he, he wants he wants to kill one of our players. He wants to shoot Harry. Get someone in to shoot Harry. And he said, "Nah, he's like that. He's oh no 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 no." Anyway, that will pass. But that was one of the things that you know we still laugh and joke about when we meet up. Um, I think we met up for um, uh, Martin Gittin's, um testimonial, which had to end at half time. I don't you don't you if yes, you know I about remember. that. Yeah, somebody had a yeah. somebody collapsed, didn't they? Glenn Glenn Creaser, Glenn Creaser, big Glenn who was the centre half before me, um, before um, he just went down. Um, touch wood, he's okay now, and everything was all right, but. We all got back together then and we were all talking about different things and, you know, that was one of the things that they were laughing and joking about. Harry, you still here? Not being assassinated yet? Not being shot yet? You know, because of <laughs> Sam put a, Stan Flaffman put a contract out on Harry. So it's, it's like... <laughs> so in them scenarios where, where obviously, you know, m- most clubs, if, if there was a manager getting sort of sacked every two seconds and then brought back and reinstated, what would happen in those scenarios? Would just Ed, um, Eddie just sort of step in and just take the team or would, would Barry just carry on and just and, and just hide from the chairman? What would happen in those scenarios? A bit a bit of both. Hide from the chairman and, you know, he'll say, oh, like, you know, he sat me on a Monday, he won't be back on a Wednesday, he sat me on a Friday and he'll be like that sometimes. And then other times Barry would have enough of it, you know, and just keep his distance and, and Edwin would do his normal role, which was the coaching and whatever. And like I said to you, there was this confidence amongst the players um, and this belief amongst the players anyway. Um, but when you start to take people's money away and not pay them, they, if you promise to give them this or you promise they'd be getting this and they're not getting it, then, you know, it became a bit serious but what happened, inadvertently, it brought us even closer together as a bunch, you know, because we knew then that a lot of the players, now not being played, could leave, could go to other clubs for free. I think, I mean, in the end, Gary Ball went to Nottingham Forest, I think, yeah. for whatever. And, you know, people were able to do whatever. And during that time, we still held together. And we still was that unit. And I think that was because of the previous months or the previous seasons, the experiences that we had together. And we, we'd sit down in the change room before training. And sometimes if we were about to stay, say we started training at 10 o'clock, we'd get there for training, meeting, meeting, a meeting. It was meetings every 10, 15, 20 minutes about, Barry would call a meeting, then Ed would call a meeting, then Barry would call another meeting, then we'd have a meeting about a meeting, then we would say, what what should we do, and what, you know, and we need to speak to the PFA, and it was, every time we went to go and train, there were meetings, and it just kind of, I think it, 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 it broke out into the wider um, circles about what was happening, uh, it went national, and you know, it just really showed up Stan for what he was, really, because he he just backtracked on a lot of the stuff that he um, agreed with players, so players weren't getting paid. He 
he wanted then Barry to get rid of these players because then if you got rid of them, he wouldn't have to worry about what he'd owe them or whatever. Mm. And it just, it, it was just, it was just getting crazy. So, um, would, so when, so obviously I know that obviously this came to a, a head in the third season you were at Barnet, but yeah. was there any signs of this before? Because obviously first season was pure success. You got promoted out of the conference. Uh, second season, um, the year of Barnet, you uh, and you, I think you were the player of the year as well. Um, yeah. We really close, and we, we in our first season we got to the playoffs and we lost to Blackpool. And I always remember that Blackpool playoff game because at Underhill, we I think we lost the away fixture three 0 but and we won the fi- home fixture two 0 but we absolutely battered them, Ham- hammered them, yeah, absolutely Ham- battered them, yeah. Should have been four mem- or five six. I'm, I remember Mark Carter had a couple of chances. I remember hitting the bar and dropping down. I remember all sorts of chances happening. And like you say, we did. We we we, we battered them, and it just wasn't to be. Definitely. Uh, so, did, was there any signs in that season of what was to come, or was it? It was it was it a bit of a shock when in the third season when you finally you know when we no know, it was all a shock yeah no it was all a shock so it was so all that a shock all a surprise it was almost as if. Um, the person who was in charge spat out his dummy and that was it. There was no sort of rhyme or reason. It was just a mood change and Stan felt this way and that was it. Just, what? So was that, no, when, was did, sh- when, did, when did you start noticing in that season that you, you your salary wasn't being paid? Was it like halfway through? Was it towards the end or was it already early? Um, I, I can't remember exactly, but I think it would have been halfway through I think it might have been a little bit further than we are now like November mate, or something like that I think um, but I just I, I just remember having to go around there on behalf of the players and sit down with Stan and his wife Helen and you know and we had his son Mark Flashman who was a reserve goalkeeper well he was a, a mascot really <laughs> you know <laughs> uh, he, he was he was probably um, Stan's ears and eyes you know uh, inside the camp, but yeah, it, it it was it was difficult, and like you say, once the PFA got involved as well, and then I remember the Sun and headline news, and Stan was furious, and because he was being painted as the ogre and the bad one, when the cap fits, he he was. That's what you know. He brought all this down on on Barnet Football Club himself. So what was his ration when he was when you were meeting with him? What was his reasoning for suddenly just like not paying players and stuff? I don't know. I th- I think he just didn't want to. I don't know if he had any financial difficulties or just didn't want to. Yeah, because yes. up until that time he was quite free with his money, wasn't he? He was always funding players. He was always fu- players were you know. Yeah, we I mean it, it could be that we had we we lost the Blackpool game. It could be that it could be that he given up on Barry and he didn't want to fund it anymore and finance it anymore. You know, it could be all those things. But in the way that he did it was, you know, again something unique to football. Definitely. I mean, it's I when you when you know about the backstory about what was going on behind the scenes and how long it was going on for. I mean, would you consider that promotion to be probably one of the biggest achievements in your career? Um, definitely, what? because you've got to go back to f- the time how football was and how players were paid and how, 
you couldn't get away with half the stuff you get away with now off the part financially and you know recreate a consistent level of performance because now there's there's diet there's health there's everybody's working on looking to get that extra whatever they can do whereas our extra was ourselves was our mentality was our confidence was our belief in each other but you know our, our structure well our shape sometimes you could pull and tug at it but you know overall we'd think that we could overcome anything but ultimately you can't you know and ultimately at some point at some point it starts to crumble around the edges um but you kept so, going, and this is was it was the main, the main yeah, thing no, about it. No, Just exactly. So that's why it's so amazing achievement, because at some point, a wheel will fall off. At some point, something else happens. And we had loads of wheels falling off, but our car was still going straight ahead, you know, using that analogy. So I don't know. It was just an incredible time and the incredible atmosphere. And I've never been around a group of players like that throughout my entire footballing career. I can, I can imagine. Because obviously Barry decided he'd had enough, didn't he? And he yeah. he went. But was it, was it um, I think Eddie, he steadied, the sh- he steadied the ship or just took the ship, you know, yeah. tried to get, get us across the line. Um, so was, no, it, was, think... was Barry in the background or was Barry by this point had like completely cut himself off from the whole situation? Well, in, in the end, Barry had cut himself off and Edwin was... You know, Barry had gone and went to South End, didn't he? He kind of um, cut his ties with Stan and Barnett. Um, I think he'd had enough of to and throwing and being sacked and being reinstated and being sacked and being reinstated. Um, I think he found it just too much aggravation and he could see that he was losing a lot of key players and I, th- I think he just decided that, you know, Enough's enough. Um, is the, yeah, the opportunity for him to go to the South End. And then from there, his next opportunity he had was, you know, Birmingham City. And I was fortunate in the fact that I went with him to South End as a player coach and also to Birmingham. But South End, again, were a bit unhappy about us leaving, going to Birmingham and retained my registration. So I was only able to coach um, at Birmingham. And in the end, I think when we signed from Southend, uh, Gary Poole and Jonathan Hunt, Hunty, was then that my registration came and I was able to play. And then I played a couple of games and I snapped my medial ligaments. So that put pay to my, you know, footballing days there. So going back to the sort of, just want to go back to that last game of the season when you knew you, kept, you, you finished third. How did that feel? Because... I can imagine after a long season like that, you've had this amazing achievement. I mean, that's still to this day the best season Barnett's ever had in its whole mm. in its whole um, existence as a club. Getting promoted to what is now Division One. In those days, it was um, yeah, I think Division Division three. Division Three. Yeah. So when you sat there, sat into the change room afterwards, what was what were you feeling? How was it? How did it feel knowing that all the stuff that had gone on and what was probably going to happen in the future? 
Was there, was there that feeling amongst the team, knowing this is probably the last time we'll play together? Yeah, there was, there was a feeling of that was it. There was a feeling of it's been nice knowing you. That, it, that, and it was a shame because, you know, if we had stayed together, I think it would have been, well, if we had stayed together and we had the resources to stay together, I don't think there'd have been a lot to stop us, really. You know, we would have gone on to uproot more trees, you know. But, um, yeah, it was a sense of feeling, well, that was a good old ride, boys. Well done. And um, good luck, basically. It was... Yeah, it was it was it was a bit sweet because it was great that what we did, and then also we just knew, you know, you you can't you can't keep that level of um, performance, that level of um, consistency with all that chaos, all that rubbish, all everything. It was just really impossible. Um, and like you say, for the period of time, you kind of sat there and just was like, <sighs> you know, you were relieved for what you achieved, but then you just didn't think you had enough to keep going because you knew, you know, some of the obstacles that lie ahead, we wouldn't have been all together to go and do them. So it was just... So no, no. I was going to say, just from there, obviously you went on to Southend and then obviously you went on to, to Birmingham. And I, I, I suppose you, Barry brought a lot of ex-Barnet players with him for a lot of these, you know, for a lot of this team. And, um, but I think from there, because you were coming to the end of your career but by this point, weren't you? You were still yeah. moving into yeah. the coaching. The coaching. Um, is yeah. it right that you had, what's called, um, there was something I read on Wikipedia, and I th- this is very interesting. It said you're the oldest player ever to sign a full professional playing contract for the first time. Were you always yeah. part time at Barnet? Yeah. Sorry. Were you always on a part time contract at Barnet the whole time? At Barnet, yeah, I, I signed. Um, I think it was when all the players went professional. I was still working at the BBC, so I was still part time. So the whole time. So the whole time. So here, here's another story. I'd turn up for training. I'd get the after. I'd work it. I'd work it. We'd work, and we'd um, at work. I'd say I'd, I'd work certain hours, build up some hours. I'd worked in personal at the BBC, and I would say have, I don't know, th- Wednesday afternoon off for training, or Thursday afternoon off to get down for training, and I'd work the hours. And I'd get there Thursday, and there's no training. We're in the next day, but they forgot to tell me because I'm not. That they change things at the last minute and they say, "All right, lads, well done. You can have tomorrow off. Come in on Friday." <laughs> so, right. so you know, I decide. I thought, right, you know what? This is going to be. It, that's a sign in itself. They're forgetting about you. You know, you're not the forefront of their mind. So I thought, well, all right, let's have a look. I'll have, I'll have a bash at this and go full time and see where it takes me and have a look at the coaching. 
And I went full time and I was 30, I think, four or 33, I don't know, 33. And I didn't know at the time, but it was pointed out to me after that Tony Book at Man City was the oldest player to sign a professional contract for the first time until I signed a professional contract at Barnet. So then I became the oldest player to sign a professional contract. So, yeah, that's um, something I think I found out afterwards, not at the time, you know, so... It's interesting. You played. You played. You went to Stevenage, but I think you didn't. You didn't like. I think you only played like one game at Stevenage, or was that? I, was... I went. I went to Stevenage because Paul Fairclough said he wanted some experience to help the lads to get promotion and blah 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 and whatever. I played one or two games, but I just went there really to help them because they would. Having had the promotion with Barnet, they he must have felt oh I could add some kind of experience and help some of the lads and which I did but I'm not sure that he liked because he'd say something like um in the change room after the game he'd have a go at the players um we had about six matches left to the end of the season when I went and joined them and I think I played one and then he was saying um you play like this we're not to get promotion and blah 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 and, da, 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 da. and then he said Alzi have you got anything to say you know, because he wanted me to back him up and it was a poor performance. We lost one nil, I think, at Mansfield or Mac or somewhere or whatever. And I said, Yeah, I've got something to say. The game's gone. We've lost it. We've lost it. So we've got five matches left. We should be thinking about our home game on Tuesday night. That's important. That's where our focus needs to be. This is gone. We can't do nothing about that. But we can do something about Tuesday. And if you guys got anything about you and you want to, you know, get promotion and you want to show the manager that you're not the rubbish that he's shouting at you, whatever, then it's all about Tuesday. And I think Paul was like, he was a bit, because he was more or less saying that we didn't do well and we're not going to get promotion playing like that. And I was saying, well, we're not going to play the next five games like that. So focus on Tuesday and make sure we turn it around. And on Tuesday, we won... 6-1 or something ridiculous and you know it proved the point that and I just it's really funny because I listened just a couple of days a couple of days ago to um, the uh, the Arsenal Netflix thing series with Mikel Arteta and he was saying he said something similar in the change room you know we were poor we were bad but now it's gone we have to focus on Tuesday. No, 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 no. He was talking about Tuesday. No, 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 no. And, you know, we were doing that back then. You know, for coaching and for management, I always took the belief that if you're doing really well, you just got to hold your team and hold your players, rein them back in a bit. And if you're doing poorly and you're having a little of a bad run, you've got to be able to pick people up. So if you stay in that middle there somewhere, you know, you never get too down and you never get too carried away your performance levels stay at a certain level. And that's how I kind of operated. And that's how I played my own football. You know, I was never, like I say, the greatest player, but I was never having a rubbish or bad game. You know, I was always there or thereabouts. And and that kind of um, philosophy has stood me well in, um, in football. And so when I was talking to the Stevenage players about that, you know, they went on to... I think they were successful in the end, but 
and I went, I think they owed me some money, couldn't pay me, so said I can go away to Torremolinos with the rest of the players or something for free. And I was, well, I don't want to go to Torremolinos. You said I'll get this. But in the end, I just said, oh, you know what? Yeah, I'll go with the lads because they were a good bunch of lads. And I went away with them in the season and, you know, they were successful. So after that, Steve, obviously you retired after Stevenage. Yeah. And you went on to have a, uh, a career, uh, or a second win, a second life in, in management. Uh, I think Har- Haraborough is where, you, where you, were, you were at for a long time. And, yeah, well, uh, what happened was Edwin was there and he, I was in Cyprus. I was living in, um, in Ayanapa and I was doing the bars and clubs, running a bar and club out there in Cyprus. And um, I came back, I used to come back for the winter and go back kind of April to September. So I came back one year and Edwin was saying, do you want to come and help me coach at Harabarra? So I said, oh, all right then, well, I'll try and see how it goes. And he got the sack and they asked me if I would be caretaker manager. And I was for a few months. And I think they didn't think I'd take it because I thought Ed and Edwin and I were close friends and because we'd come together all the time and stuff. But I spoke to Edwin. Edwin said, yeah. You know, I said, and basically, you know, he's not fussed. You do what you want. And uh, as caretaker manager, maybe permanent, and I ended up being there for another 10 years at Haribara. Um, so yeah that was interesting times because you were operating on a shoe budget so we'd play size when I was manager at Haribara who had a budget a playing budget their five subs on a bench were more than my entire squad and staff let alone their playing squad so you know I think I had something like seven eight hundred pound budget and we play against teams that got two and a half, three grand a week budgets. But we were still always there and thereabouts and mid to top side. And we got to the playoffs and did well. They never got to the playoffs before. You know, we won a lot of local cups and stuff and FA Cup runs. So, you know, we were punching well above our weight. But, you know, that, 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 that was, they were fun times as well with trying to operate in one hand tied behind your back can imagine and then and then this young man came in came into your uh, into your world um by the with the, yeah. by the name of albert so tell me yes how, tell me how albert came came about all right i from my work in cyprus i i ran a help run a bar in covent garden where i sort the music out djs and whatever and one of the djs i had there said to me i've got a lad for you I've got a lad for you he's really good and I said, yeah, well, who's this? He said, you must come. He's in Shepherd's Bush. And it was Ravenscourt Park. And I lived Brackenbury Road, which is around the corner from Ravenscourt Park. So I said, okay. And I arranged for the lad to come and train on a Wednesday with the youth team. So he trained, no, on the Monday. He trained on a Monday. And I said to play on a Wednesday for the youth team. I went to watch him play on the Wednesday and I was sat in the stand and I phoned up the UT manager and said, take him off. He's training with me tomorrow, Thursday. We should Thursday night, the first team trained. 
So the Wednesday, he must have played about, I don't know, 20 minutes, 25 minutes. Uh, took him off. And I brought him home because he lived not far from me. And I picked him up for the Thursday. And then I brought him in a squad on the Saturday. And he'd play. He'd last to about half time. And his socks were around his ankles and he was finished. Then the next game, he'd last for about an hour. And then he was finished. Then he'd last 70, 75 minutes. Then he was finished. And all the time, I'm picking him up, bringing him home. And unbeknown to me, they started calling him Son of Owsie. You know, so because he was coming <laughs> with me and going with me. So I thought, hold on, this is, this is not good for Albert's career. Um, I've got to get him back in with the boys. And it's one of the lads who lived in Shepherd Bus, um, Quasi. And I said to Quasi, Quasi, do me a favour, take Albert home. Can you pick him up on Tuesday? Can you take him home? Yeah. And so then he was back in with the players and not son of Alzi anymore, you know. So it, it, it's funny. But, you know, he went on and... He was just a slight lad. He was quick, had a lot of skill, but he didn't know when to pass or he didn't know when to cross. He didn't know when to shoot. So when he should shoot, he would dribble. When he should dribble, he would play early. And it was all there, but just to put it together. And I used to sit down in the car and drive him the way home, in his ears, all the way back for the 20 minutes, half hour, every game, every training session, in his ears. And I think he was relieved in the end that when he started game with the players. Um, but it it sat with him, and I think he kind of took me on as his, I don't know, mentor. He invited me to his wedding. He introduced me as his father, as his dad. This is my second dad, you know, he'd say. And, you know, so he's a great lad, Albert. Great lad. And he's kind of... Um, done really well in his footballing career he's done really well for himself he's got a lovely family now and he's he's playing at Queen's Park Rangers who I told Queen's Park Rangers I think under Mark Hughes and yeah under Mark Hughes that there's a player on your doorstep but they weren't interested um Paul Fairclough took him to be fair at Barnet um Albert had a choice to go to John Steele with Dagenham or to Paul Fairclough at Barnet and I was his agent, not his agent, but I was with him to go and speak to Paul Fairclough. I was with him to go and speak to John Steele because he wanted me to come with him. Yeah. And so when I did that, I realised, look, Albert, you're going to need an agent. So I put him in touch with an agent yeah. that I could trust and explain to that agent what Albert was about, how much I'd put into Albert and how much I you know, cared about Albert. So you would have to look after him properly. And, you know, he's had Barnet, uh, Bristol City, you know, Middlesbrough, Aston Villa, Nottingham Forest. You know, the, he, he, he was looked after. So, you know, no complaints on that score. And uh, it couldn't happen to a nicer guy. You know, there's few people you meet in football that you'd say they're just 100% really nice guy. Because everybody really is... It's cut for it. They're out for themselves. But, you know, Albert was... He, he was special. He was a good lad. So tell me, did you have a, a, a little... Uh, did you try and lean him towards Barnet instead of Dagenham? Or was it his choice? No, no. No, his choice. That's the whole thing, you know. But it was quite an easy choice for him to make. When we went to Dagenham, and John Steele uh, sat there and was talking to him, and he was trying to sell it to him, 
before we got to the office to sit down and talk to John Steele, there were a lot of um, young guys, probably 15, 16, you know, trousers around their asses, hanging off them and just kind of street boys. And he looked at that, Albert, and he wasn't too impressed because he didn't want to be treated as a street boy. He wanted to be respected and whatever. And I think he said to John Still, um, okay, um, I need to go away and um, think about this and can have a bit of time to think about it. And, and John Still said something along the lines of, if you don't want to jump to join me now, I know you don't want to be here or, or something like that. And, you know, I'm not sure that I want you to be here or whatever. If that's how, I think he tried to put a bit of pressure on him to squeeze him, to make him, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So he made the power play and we walked out and we left. And after we left, I didn't say anything because I don't have to live with it. Albert does. So Albert just said to me on the way back, I just waited and we were driving and talking about it. How do you think it went? What do you think? And what do you feel? Blah, blah, blah. He just said no. I said, all right. And I knew why he said no. So yeah. I didn't need to go any further. And Paul Pearclough, um, he said, oh, he'd been to Ghana, where Albert's family's from. And he talked a lot about Ghana and it clicked with Albert. And, you know, he said what he wanted to do and this and that and whatever. And Albert felt more comfortable with that and... I didn't need to say anything, you know. I didn't need to steer him because it's not my job to steer him. I would only steer him if I felt he was going the wrong way. So he didn't need me to say anything. He needed me to just support him on what he was thinking. And all the time he felt to go to Barnet as opposed to Dagenham. So it, it, it was amazing. easy. And... It's amazing to hear the bit of the story behind it. I, Dave, I could speak to you all night um, about Barnet and stuff like that, and I appreciate that it's getting, getting late, and I appreciate how much time you've given me tonight. Um, no problem. Dave, thanks ever so much for your time. Thanks ever so much for coming on our show. And um, hopefully, if you ever come to Barnet, we could buy you a beer. Um, and uh, and just basically thank you for all your, you know, how, you know, what a legend you are at Barnet and all the achievements you had at Barnet. Um, but yeah, thanks ever so much for tonight, and um, hopefully, we will uh, we'll get this uh, podcast up very soon. Yeah, well, all I can say is, Barnet's got a special place in my heart, and I had the greatest time football wise, social wise, everything at Barnet, and it was a great bunch of players that Barry had put together, and it was just unfortunate the way it ended, but it was just a roller coaster ride. It was just brilliant. Thanks again to Dave Howe, what a gentleman, gave me so much of his time and really enjoyed that conversation. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to Bees Pod and like our Facebook page and our Twitter page at Bees Pod. Normal service will be resumed and we'll hopefully have a pod up very soon. Take care.